Welcome to Soundwalker. This is episode 10. Today we speak to Carl Safina, environmental writer, activist, author of many books, including Song for the Blue Ocean, Eye of the Albatross, Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel, and his latest, Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace. We'll learn how he found culture in the world of sperm whales, which we're hearing right now in the background, and how he came to write an entire book on one single bird. I'm kind of interested how your whole trajectory went from being a scientist to a kind of writer and activist, and whether whether there was any kind of moment when you said that you wanted to write a different kind of book than a, than a scientific research paper. Was there a moment you decided to do this, or was it always there? Did you always want to communicate to the general public? There actually was a moment when I decided that a scientific book would not do the job. And the moment was, well, I, I had had an ambition to write a book someday. From the time I was about uh, 19 or 20 years old, I had written, I, I had read some great stuff by Edward Abbey and some some stuff by John McPhee, books that I found very exciting and inspiring. And I had this thought, you know, I think I could maybe do something like this someday. So that was always in the back of my mind for all those years. But then through the decade of the 80s, I was doing research papers, real real science-y stuff in the peer-reviewed journals. And then in the 90s, in the early 90s, I started getting asked to do policy papers about a lot of the work I was doing in fisheries and fisheries policy reform, but I still wanted to write this book. So I went and gathered all the material that I had that would go into a book about the work that I was doing, which was the problem of fisheries depleting the fish of the world and uh, creating an enormous additional lethal effect on unintended species that they were also catching by accident and not caring whether they did or not. And I I put all this material in my car, boxes and boxes of files and stuff like that, and also a lot of recorded interviews that I had done with people involved in fishing for bluefin tuna because I was working mainly to try to stop the export of bluefin tuna because they were being rapidly depleted. And this is an animal that gets to be about a thousand pounds, a really truly magnificent creature. And they were vanishing. People were still catching them and selling them and the price for them in the Japanese sushi markets in, in Japan had gone from, well, they had gone from about five cents per pound where they were just dumped off and or sold for cat food to a hundred dollars a pound and then and then many hundreds of dollars a pound fish were worth tens of thousands of dollars so i was trying to figure out why they seemed to be disappearing and the scientists were saying that they were disappearing but the fishermen were insisting there were a lot of them so i had a lot of these recorded interviews i had gone to new england and tried to really check things out as best i could maybe the fish had moved maybe there was still plenty of them like the fishermen were saying Anyway, I, I took that and all, all the boxes of research papers and files and some books 
on the subject, and I went to the marina where I keep my boat. They had a room that they rented out to people who were going to go on a charter boat the next day if they wanted like a motel type room. But I rented that room for myself for a week. The idea was that at the end of the week, I was going to come out with a viable concept for a book, a viable table of concept con contents and a viable concept for a book. So my starting point was write an academic book about the problems in the world fish world's fisheries. It would have like chapter one, overfishing, chapter two, unintended bycatch, chapter three, destruction of wetlands, and I realized that by chapter four, even I would not want to read such a book. It just seemed, it seemed dull. It didn't seem like it would communicate. So I was also, you know, since I had those recordings with the tuna fishermen, I started transcribing a lot of that stuff. Some of it was on boats. Some of it was on boats while we were fishing. Some of it was on boats while we were catching fish and in between. So there was some action in the recordings and there was some notes. I, I intended to just take the notes and put them in my information book. I did not intend to use any of the action. But as I went along transcribing, I started to type out the action stuff. And I started to realize that what I had there was a little bit of what was in those books that I had loved, which was um, People like Edward Abbey and John McPhee, they went places and they described what they were seeing and doing. And it took me several days of being in that room to, to figure out this very, very obvious thing that since I loved those books and I wanted to write books like them, why didn't I try to write a book like them instead of a book like I was sort of taught to write being an academic science person? And I, and I had the material. And the material was reading back to me pretty well. It seemed interesting to be on a boat fishing for great fish with people that, in some cases, I sharply disagreed with. And there was, you know, there was tension, there was action, and there were different places. And it, it was literally in, in, that, in that moment or in that morning when I realized that I didn't really want to keep writing the kinds of things that I would be expected to write as a, as a person who was a working scientist. And uh, I was never really a typical academician. I didn't have an academic job. I worked for an environmental group. But this project was very much outside of my job, and I, and I needed to sort of, you know, invent what it was that I was doing. So I think that that epiphany hit me on Wednesday of that week. And, and yes, by Friday, I had what I considered a viable idea for what, what did become my first book, which was called Song for the Blue Ocean, wherein I would go places, check things out, write about who I was meeting, what I was seeing, where I was going, and what the issues were. Did you feel you really had to... Um reinvent what you were going to be when you're writing this different kind of book? Was it hard to become a writer of these books from being a scientist as opposed to being a journalist or, you know, a writer? I guess we know the, McPhee and Abbey, yeah. they're, they're kind of different. McPhee 
you know, has a special journalist style and Abby was just being his cranky self, even though they write sometimes things that are kind of similar. They came from a different place. Yeah. And you again from a third different place. Yeah, well, I never took a writing course and I don't consider myself a journalist at all. I'm, um, I'm, I am now a writer. I, I am an author, but I don't, I don't think of myself as a journalist. I don't think that my job is to bring you the news or to simply report on what somebody is doing. And, you know, what I liked about Abby, without, without realizing any of these distinctions at the time, I, I liked his passion a lot, and I liked the fact that he was writing about his impressions of things. And he had some very, very, very valid insights into things that were really his own and in many ways kind of unique to him. But, but in other ways, we, many of us shared those feelings. So anyway, um, I didn't have any idea how to approach the project. I, I felt like I didn't really know how to write like that. In some ways, I had to unlearn things that I had been taught about writing scientific papers. And because I was really without a compass in like, how do you do this? And how do you write this kind of a book, a place-based narrative. I have all this material. You know, I had gone to a lot of places. I went to New England. I went to the Pacific Northwest about six different times. I went to Central America. I went to Hong Kong and Japan and the Philippines. And now what do you do with all this stuff? And how do you write it? How do you write it so that it is interesting, not just, I went here and I did this, but an interesting narrative. So I, I didn't get any of that from the training that I had gotten as a scientist. I had never been taught to be a journalist. I had never taken a writing course of any kind. So I drew from, uh, you will appreciate this, I drew from a skill that I had developed based on a particular talent that I have. I have a talent for rhythm and I had developed into a professional drummer. I had I was in the Musicians Union when I was 15 years old, and I, I played a lot of playing, of paying gigs. And I worked my way through college playing the drums, and I, and I still do play. And at the time especially, I, I considered myself to be uh, a person who was partly a scientist by vocation and partly a drummer by vocation. So. I thought my, my approach was really to try to play the words, try to make the sentences rhythmic, try to pay attention to the dynamics of a chapter and those kinds of things. And my, my little wink to myself about all of that was the title of the book, which was Song for the Blue Ocean. I could have called it Crisis in World Fisheries. Nobody would have wanted to read Crisis in World Fisheries, but Song for the Blue Ocean sounds nice. And also, as I said, it was my, my little inside joke to myself about how I had approached it to begin with. So that all of it was on-the-job training. A lot of it I did, didn't really understand for a long time. I had lunch with a friend of mine who was much older than me. She had written a bunch of children's books. And she said, so Carl, how is this book coming along? And I said, oh my God, it's killing me. It's, it's the worst mistake I've ever made. 
I, I don't think my career will ever recover from the time and effort and money that I've sunk into this because I don't know what I'm doing. And she said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, I have all this material and, you know, you have to figure out how to order it. I don't really, you know, I don't really know what to put first or second or third. So I did have all those other struggles going on. And I remember she, she, she stopped, so she was about to put a piece of broccoli in her mouth. She had it on the tip of her fork and she, she stopped and she waved this broccoli at me and she said, just remember, whenever you're writing, you're telling a story. And I had never heard of such a thing before. And I thought, okay, all right, I gotta remember this. Whenever you're writing, you're telling a story. Okay, I'm gonna remember that. So then I get home and I get back to work and I realize I don't know what a story is. What, what is a story? Is a story something you read to a child at bedtime? What, what is a story? It took, me, it took me a long time to figure out what a story is. And my answer to the question is a story is something that has an element of time and over time something changes. So what I tell what I tell students is a story is different from an encyclopedia entry. An encyclopedia entry just has a subject and it tells you a lot of information about the subject. A story is something that has a beginning and a middle and an end. Even a science paper in a journal can be a story because it's here's what we knew Here's what we didn't know. Here's what we tried to find out. We did this experiment. We did this study. We have these observations. And now, now we know something different. Here's what we learned. So even that is a story. And uh, once I understood what I was supposed to try to do as far as the stories and trying to apply the rhythmic approach that was really the only thing in my background that I felt could help me, I finally went from having the project be looking like uh, an absolute disaster to something that by the time I was done, I was so exhausted with it, I, I didn't know if it was anything or any good, but it got a very good reaction and it changed my whole career because after that, people were telling me, look, you know, you should stop coming to all these meetings with us. We can go to the same meetings, but we can't write the books that you're going to write and those books can help us in the cause. So you should write more. And, um, and I wanted to write more, so that's what I did. And that was a long time ago now. That was, you know, talking about 25 years ago. Yeah. So how many writer-drummers can you think of? Oh, that's a... You know, I never thought of it that way. I'm sure there are more than I know about. Do you know of some? Uh, I thought of one that immediately came to mind, which is Sam Shepard. Oh, really? Sam Shepard was a drummer. I didn't know that. Yeah, and Sam Shepard wrote this wonderful play called Tooth of Crime, where a drummer is trying to solve world problems, like like he's hired for this. He's stuck in a room. He's playing the drums, that's, inventing this language, and like great. solving everything. Wow. Yeah, wow. It, it, he invents his own language. And, you know, I saw this when I was in college. Seeing this play really kind of changed my life. Okay, okay. Shift your focus, your immediate attention to the sounds around you, the floor, the space. Keep free from fantasy, just stay in the real. Forget the image, no pictures, just pure focus. Do you feel it? I don't know, I don't know. It'll come, don't worry. 
It's all about telling stories, figuring out rhythms, and, and um, that, and also reading Edward Abbey as a teenager also got me thinking that, like, this, this he's telling us what needs to be done, uh -huh. but, you know, can you also tell the same, how do you work the same way? Okay, I'm only one of the earlier books I want to talk about, then we go to the new one, which is... Uh, I remember I first became aware of you, I think, when I heard there was this guy who followed this single albatross around the world and wrote this huge book about it. Go, this, this is impressive. And uh, yeah, we can see like Song of the Blue Ocean. This is clear, like, you know, the world needs this book. It's a great title. It's going to help save the, the sea, but save the, the oceans and, the, and all the problems of what we're doing to them. But then the, the obsession of following around one bird, like was this obvious that this is what you're going to do next? Or was it like a, a tough decision to admit that you were going to do this? Well, the Albatross book was my second book. And the way that that evolved was that in the outline for the first book that I came out of that motel room with, there were five parts to it, and I realized that five parts was too long. So the part that I took out completely was, was anything about the polar regions. The initial outline had two parts about the tropics, so I just crushed those together to make a three-part book, and I left out the high latitudes. So I thought, well, maybe I should, maybe my next book should get to the high latitudes, and who, who could get us there? Well, an albatross could get us there. And I was going to write about albatrosses all around the world. And I was going to go here and see these albatrosses and go there and see those albatrosses and write about all the different ones in the different places. Because there's, a, there's a, almost two dozen species. They live in the North Pacific. They live uh, in the area around the Galapagos Islands, far, 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 you know, large diameter around the Galapagos Islands. But there's one species that nests there. Lots of them around New Zealand, um, uh, some of them in the sub-Antarctic Ocean around and around the entire world, Indi high latitude Indian Ocean islands, uh, islands like South Georgia, off of the Falklands, in the Falklands. Oh, I was going to go to all these places. And I discussed this book with my editor, and he, he said, well, how many places are you going to go to? And I, I said, you know, eight or something like that. And he said, um, how many species of albatrosses are there? And I said, well, there's like 22. And he said, hmm, well, just pick one bird. And I thought, that's absurd. You can't take a complicated subject like this and pick one bird. But I didn't say anything. And he followed up by saying, you know, people have written a lot of books about lions, but the only one we know is the one that somebody named called Elsa. <laughs> and I thought, all right, well, checkmate. I think you've got me there. So on the train ride home, I thought, how, how do you do this? What, what could I possibly do? And I thought, well, maybe I could follow one, one, satellite tracked albatross you know maybe i could make that work i i didn't fully execute on that at first i actually did go to a lot of other places and i got a lot of other material but by the time i had finished with the one bird i realized that all the other material i had gotten would 
ruined the book and that the one bird was really a good story. So that's what the book is about. And it does work, I think, that way. One, that book won a couple of really nice awards that were very, you know, very vindicating, I guess. More, more vindicating to my editor's idea than to my own. And uh, with this editor, are we talking about Jack McRae here? We, we are, your we are talking about the great and formidable Jack McRae, yes. And do you think he suddenly came up with that idea about the one bird, or had he been preparing to tell you this? Did it just come to him at that moment, pick one bird? No, Jack, Jack doesn't have to prepare or think about anything. He has a, a vast knowledge of what works, and in many conversations I've had with him, he, he was always actually very light on editing. In, in many ways, I always wished I had somebody would really engage more with the material on a chapter-by-chapter -chapter basis, because I have had that experience with a couple of other people. It can be very helpful if the people are good and you have a good, a good rapport with them. Jack was never really like that, but what Jack was like was whenever he said anything, it, it came from such experience that... He was, he was either right or we were going to go on a very worthwhile journey in this conversation and figure something out together. Yeah, that's the kind of editor that's one dreams of having, I guess. And they're, they're harder and harder to find somebody yeah. with this amount of experience. I was, I was very, yes, I was very, very lucky to have him as an editor to work with and a close friend. He has, he has become a close friend. He retired only a couple of years ago, well, even maybe only a year and a half ago. And um, so that would make it uh, about 20, 23 or so years that I worked with him. I, I found out after I finished my first book that he was Edward Abbey's editor for about 20 years. I didn't know that. It would have been nice to have known that there was that kind of connection to... A Did you ever find out how he well. transformed any of Abby's books? Like saying, why did you write about this job of yours instead, this ranger cabin instead of that one? Just write about one. <laughs> no, no, I, I, nev I, never, I never really talked to him about what kind of working relationship he, he had with Abby in that way, you know, as far as like what influence did you have on him but i was curious about what kind of person abby seemed because in his books you know abby is really quite the character he's very crusty he's very sharp he's he's full of this extremely well controlled indignation that he uses like a flamethrower but in person apparently he was really rather quiet and shy which is interesting not too surprising when you when you think about it but Initially surprising. Right, and he spent a lot of time living in Hoboken, of course. Yes. This desert character. The desert rat of Hoboken, New Jersey. If you haven't read uh, Charles Bowden's book about Abby, I recommend it. The Red Caddy. He's just driving Abby's car across the desert. Edward Abbey is, uh, you know, he was a huge influence, I think, on anyone who saw nature as a way to fight back. Very true. What society was doing. Yeah. So so now it's been so many decades you've been developing your persona as a writer and activist, conservationist. So do you feel you write about animals in a different way now than when you named that albatross? After those two books, 
I, I felt like I was writing about what the ocean is, how the ocean is changing and what people are doing, how it's affecting the creatures of the sea and the people of the sea. And I had done it for this, I had done three books like that and I had done two books where I was basically hitchhiking with large wandering animals of the oceans, albatrosses and sea turtles. I didn't want to do another one where I was basically going to come up against the same issues, fishing and habitat destruction in the ocean, um, you know, maybe something about plastics in the ocean and how it affected animals. I just didn't want to keep writing a similar book with different animals at, at the helm. So I did a little bit of a pivot and wrote one book that was basically about how I, how I see the, the answer to the question of why, why is it that the destruction of the living world and the deterioration of life and the decline of all of these wild free living populations and these wild things in wild places, why does this not set off alarm bells all over the place? And I, I wanted to explore that question. So that book is called The View from Lazy Point, where I have a house, and it's a, it's a hyper-local and global book at the same time, because from that house, I launch on very far-flung journeys to the Arctic, to the Antarctic, and across the tropics, and talk about the enormous changes, and then wonder what it is about us that makes us not see these as very threatening and very alarming. And the answer I came up with was that we have, we have ways of valuing the world. They're institutional ways and we learn them. There, there are philosophies that people have written for centuries. There are religions that people have practiced for centuries. There's the economic system that now dominates most of the human world, capitalism, that people have been practicing for centuries. And all of those things were fully in place before anybody realized that the world changes at all or that humans can change the world. They're, they have nothing in them that allows them to really be responsive to change and responsible toward change that they might create because they don't think that anything in the world can change. Only science is, uh, is something where your view of the world changes all the time depending on new information about the world that you gain. But science is not how we mostly learn how to value the world. And science is not in charge of things the way that business is as far as, you know, the way, the way that change is made or religion is the way that people are taught to behave and how to value things. So, so all of those explorations were in that book, The View from Lazy Point. Then the Deepwater Horizon exploded. I was asked to write a book on that, which I did. And then I wanted to actually take a break from conservation because it was wearing me out a little bit. And I wanted to go back to my first interest, which is simply my fascination with animals and what do they do and why do they do what they do. So my last two books have kind of been about that. The only, the only problem was that the first of those two books, which is called Beyond Words, I went to just see animals being themselves in places where people don't really bother them too much. And every place I went, I found them under lethal pressure from people. The, the reserves that they have are too small. People are always encroaching or the animals go out and have major trouble. 
And um, so I couldn't really quite get away from conservation. But my idea with that book and the new book, which is called Becoming Wild, which is about culture in animals, was to basically stop making a case for conservation by saying these things, that this has declined 80%, they've lost 70% of their habitat, there are only 3,000 left. Those are just numbers. What do they tell you anyway? It's just numbers. And I wanted to try to find a way to let the animals make their own case for their own existence by showing us who they really are and how they really value being alive. So that's what those last two books, Beyond Words and now the new one, Becoming Wild, are about. Yes, so why call a book about culture and animals becoming wild when sometimes people think wildness is like the opposite of culture? Well, I guess I wanted to just sort of provide a little tweak in the title to the idea of it all. It's, um, you know, we had a few titles we were batting around, like just call it Animal Cultures. That might have been fine. But one of the ideas is that animals that are born into social groups, they have certain basic instincts that allows them to learn and do certain things. That's their genetic inheritance. But what they actually do, they learn from their social group, often from their parents or other elders in their group. This is exactly how humans learn culture. For instance, one cultural thing that we have is language. We were born genetically empowered with a capacity to learn a language, a human-type language. But what language we learn, whether it is French or Thai or Japanese or English, is entirely cultural. We, we simply have to learn everything about that language from our social group, mostly our parents and other elders that were around. And it turns out that there are quite a lot of animals that have exactly that challenge ahead of them when they're born. They have to learn how to become wild animals. They, they need to know what to do, where, where things are, what is food, where food is, how do you get food, where is shelter, where is water, what do you do if there's a drought and things are drying up, all, all of those kinds of things, or just what is attractive. If in human cultures, we have different styles of dress, different funny hats, different ways of applying tattoos or makeup or whatever it is. And some people look really weird to us. Of course, they don't look weird to them. We look weird to them. Why is that? Because it's just culture. You, you do what you're taught to do. That's your answer to how do we live here. That's what culture is. Culture is an answer to how do we live here. And uh, even with some animals, what counts as attractive courtship or, or a good song, is different and is learned from elders or from parents in cultural ways. You want to show these basic things that are part of you know, a wild life have to be learned and groups figure out how to do them. And it's, it's in that way much closer to what humans do than far away from that. Right. That's exactly right. Yep. And that's what I learned in the process of writing that book. This book goes after these universal themes, but on the basis of, of three very specific examples. And I wondered, how, how did you decide that, that sperm whales were going to be the animals when you deal with the issue of family? Well, sperm whales are very surprising. Uh, well, at least they were very surprising to me when I first learned that they live in family groups that are led by females, not, not adult males, but adult males go off elsewhere and females stay together. They're, they're led by um, an older female. She's, she's with her sisters and her daughters, and they're all with their babies. 
this is almost exactly like elephants. And the idea that sperm whales live like elephants when they live in totally different environment, they eat completely different kinds of things. Sperm whales are hunters of squid mostly. Elephants are grazers. They're, they don't eat any kind of prey or meat. And yet they have this very similar social system. And I learned that they have ways of knowing who they are depending on who they're with. They have ways of communicating who is calling, what individual is calling, what family they belong to, and what clan the family belongs to. And the clans will not mix, but the families within a clan will mix. This all struck me as really surprising, and I wanted to delve and learn more. Sperm whales are, are relatively speaking, sperm whales are very cultural beings. They're also, of course, quite spectacular just from their size and the extremes of their lifestyle. So that's one. The other is chimpanzees. Chimpanzees are very cultural relatively to, you know, relative to other animals. They make tools. The tools vary from place to place. And some of them don't make any tools. Some of them use gestures a lot more than other groups in other regions. Um, Many chimpanzee groups in a large part of their overall range are male-dominated, where males violently take dominance over the group and become the, the alpha male, but they also are pretty sneaky. They have these alliances and things like that. And yet, in one region, the chimpanzees are really, really quite peaceful. They, uh, they don't act much like chimpanzees elsewhere in that regard. So if you're going to write about culture in non-human animals, chimpanzees are sort of unavoidable. And that brings us to the third major example in the book. Although there are probably dozens of animals that enter the book, everything, literally everything from sperm whales to fruit flies are in the book. But the, uh, the three examples are sperm whales, chimpanzees, and then macaws, the, the big, big parrots of South America, South America, Central America. And they are not known to be very cultural, but the first time I saw them in the wild, I noticed that in a flock of macaws, if you see 12 macaws in a flock flying across a river in the Amazon, it's very clearly six pairs of two. They, they're obviously sticking very close to somebody that they know very, very well, even though they're in a flock. And that intrigued me a lot, and I wanted to go back and see a lot more of them and learn into them better. And I was not disappointed. They, it turns out that they are really quite cultural. Their culture is different from that of chimps or sperm whales, and that's true of every cultural thing. Our human culture is different from theirs, but that doesn't mean they don't have culture. It just means they have their own kind of culture. Why do you think that uh, many people, and particularly many scientists, are, are suspicious of this idea that animals can have culture, are resistant to this idea? We have, a, we have a tremendous bias about ourselves. We, we need to feel that humans are the best and most important thing in the world because we're kind of insecure. We, we, have, um, we have a big ego, but a very insecure ego. So we need to think that we're the biggest and the best thing that ever happened to the world. Our, our own mythologies, the, the religious views of humans and some of the philosophical views um, basically say that humans are at the top. That's a philosophical thing called the scala naturae, that 
everything in nature is in this ladder-like order with humans at the top of it. Many of the religions um, say that we are like God, that we're created in the image of God. And in other words, we are perfected beings. If you look around, you see a lot of imperfections in people, but our view of ourselves is that we are perfected beings. And our favorite story is that the world belongs to us, we are perfect, we're the most important thing. If it turns out that other creatures experience life in vivid ways or care about staying alive or know exactly who they are with and have been with for the last several decades as they've traveled thousands of miles, it, it gets in the way of that story of how special and how different we are. It makes it very, it makes it, it, makes it less convenient and less easy to do things that cause tremendous suffering to other, to other animals. And um, I think that the resistance comes from the fact that it's just very uncomfortable to realize who we are really here with on this planet. Our, our oversimplified view of them makes certain things easier for us. Of course, at the same time, people are obsessed with animals and, and we're always so interested when we hear that animals seem to behave in ways like us or have these traits we or sometimes think of as just being human. We're always excited to hear animals sing or animals have have language and, and, and talk to each other and communicate. We're, we're simultaneously worried about this and kind of obsessed by it. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that's part of our imperfection. I think that, um, you know, we we embody contradictions and we are confused about things. That's one of the things that we're confused about. There are, there are many people who, you know, really love certain kinds of animals and would never think of harming them. And then they're totally okay with killing certain other kinds of animals. I mean, look at in the United States, we, we don't eat dogs and we don't eat horses. The thought is completely revolting. In other places they do. But if you won't eat a dog and you won't eat a horse, why would you eat a pig and not even think twice about it or a cow? You know, these are, these are inconsistencies and they're inconsistencies because really of convenience and how to think about it and how uncomfortable it would be to say, well, you know, if I'm not going to eat a horse, what, why am I going to eat a cow after all? Uh, it's a lot easier to just not think about it and just say, well, horses are not for food and cows are for food. But in other parts of the world, they're both for food. And, and in some places, none of it is for food. There are major religions with, with, you know, many, many thousands of adherents in places like India where they simply do not hurt animals. In, in, in India, a very, very poor and chaotic place, you see street dogs and um, they look fine. Uh, in many parts of the world, the street dogs all look like they're starving. Why, why do they look fine in India? Because their belief has to do with reincarnation and they, you know, the people who believe that, Hindus and Jains, for instance, they, they think it's good to take care of all living animals. And so they, they feed the street dogs. And these are people who, you know, it's not like they have a lot of extra to spread around, but they, they're generous in that way. And so there are all of these different views that humans have, and many of them are extremely, extremely different and conflicting with one another. We're sort of, we really are all over the map. What was it like for you to first hear sounds of sperm whales and realize they were more than echolocation, but also something cultural? 
Well, I, I knew that going in because I had read into it and I, you know, that's why I was interested in going there and writing about them. But um, to hear it, I mean, the whole thing was very exciting. For, I feel like I'm really the person I'm supposed to be when I'm out somewhere in a, in a wild place looking for animals, looking at animals, and I especially love being with the people who know them the best, researchers who have spent many years and countless thousands of hours trying to get a little closer into these mysteries. And, you know, it, it wasn't easy when I first put on the headphones and the microphone was over the side. I didn't know what I was really supposed to be listening for or hearing. And what, what was surprising was how many other sounds there were. You could hear dolphins of different kinds squealing in the distance. You, you, you could sometimes hear that far in the distance, very faintly, there was a humpback whale singing. You could hear ships that were getting in the way of what you were trying to listen to, or even the slap of waves against the hull of the boat. It was all, it was all a big jumble of sound. So, you know, our ears are very, very good at separating sounds. When we listen to music, we can clearly tell that, you know, this is the guitar and this is the horns and this is the, the drums and this is the singer. It all comes as one wall of sound and we have an amazing, amazing ability disentangle and decode this as it's coming in but um, you kind of have to learn that and I had to learn that when I was listening to the ocean there and then uh, then I did hear it you know and I had a, an extremely good guide and interpreter the scientist Shane Garrow who was showing me and teaching me all of these things so you know he would say okay now I do hear them now so here here put the headphones on and I would listen and, and it was, it was very exciting. When they were close, it was amazingly clear and crisp and loud to hear those codas. It sounded like somebody tapping on a hard countertop with their fingernails, tapping out these, these brief codes. Really, really great. Yeah, I always thought it was so impressive that when Hal Whitehead discovered this phenomenon, he just took these recordings that he made of many months' journey across the ocean and then when, only back in the lab, when he listened to them, did, did he figure out what was happening? That while collecting the material, pretty much had no idea what it was until months later. It was like mystery. Well, that's, that mystery and that confusion while you're out in the wild and in the open there, that, that is understandable to me because that's mostly my experience of it. It's like, wow, what am I listening to here? And... I think it, you know, it had to have taken Hal Whitehead a long time to figure out the patterns in what he was hearing. Shane is astonishing at hearing things. He can tell the different kinds of dolphins apart. Where to me, you know, they really sound like it sounds like I'm listening to the same thing. I had the same experience with Ken Balcom listening to the orcas of the Pacific Northwest when I was writing Beyond Words. He would say, "Well, I, I hear." I hear the J the J pod now. Oh wait, wait. The the L pod is with the J pod. Now listen, you can can you hear the the, the mewy kind of sounds? And I'm listening. I'm right next to him, listening to the same speakers that these sounds are coming out of, and I'm just not hearing the differences. But to him, it's like night and day. 
So it's, these people are very, very, very impressive, and that, that skill that they've acquired is not something you just jump into. So I would not have been able to do what I was doing without them. I mean, that's that's a total understatement. They made it possible. I think that's one of the important parts of the work you're doing is celebrating the fact that these scientists are connoisseurs of the natural world. They can interpret and hear and perceive things. And I don't know, in my experience, some people with this expertise don't even realize they have it. Important part of this new book is that why is there so much beauty in the animal world? Darwin, as you point out, said that different animals have a different aesthetic sense. They've evolved the need to want a certain kind of beautiful song or feathers or certain kind of artwork, land art structure like bowerbirds do. There's no reason that these things have to be there. In fact, they waste a lot of energy and time, extremely inefficient. You could never say this is survival of the fittest. All of these animals would be better off not doing all this, but they evolved the need to do it. And that's just shows that evolution is full of wild, crazy stuff. Yes, not, not sheer practicality and I think that one of the most really astonishing things is that aesthetic things that appear to have evolved only for a purpose that is, is of no use to humans, like the way that a song of a particular bird is there to appeal to another bird of that species, or the way that flowers are there to attract insects so that the flowers will be pollinated, and yet we perceive bird songs as beautiful and flowers as beautiful and pleasant smelling as though these aesthetics in the world that are there to tangle up the nervous systems of, of other species have a kind of a universality that not only tangles up the nervous system of a pollinator or of another individual that is hearing them and, and is motivated in some way to be attracted or to come and challenge, but humans, that, that there's no reason in practicality for a bird song to, to sound one way or another to us, or, or for a flower to smell nice to us or look nice to us, and yet they do. Uh, you know, flowers look more beautiful to us than roots look to us. We, we have as little use for a flower as we do for their roots, but we love the flowers and there's this universality to the the things that we aesthetically call beautiful and we have a capacity in our mind to receive these inputs like the, like the sight of a root or a flower and say well the flower is beautiful why why do we have that capacity it's you know it takes a lot of wiring in a brain to make that happen and it it seems to me that without the experience of beauty in the world around us, the fact that most people's favorite colors are either blue or green, or, or blue and green. These, these are the dominant colors of the world around us. It's the sky and all the plants. Why, why is it that we see those things as our favorite colors and not some rare color that might be a particular treat? Why the common? Uh, it seems to me that if life was just mere survival, just a grinding attempt to stay alive day to day, it wouldn't really be worth the tremendous effort that it takes. And that beauty makes it worthwhile. And in that sense, our perception of beauty 
itself keeps us alive. The, these to me were astonishing thoughts, and whether they're exactly right or partly right, I, I'm not sure, but you know, they, they gave me chills as I was writing this book and realizing some of these things and trying to probe deep and deep into these thoughts and questions, some of which I did very much with your help, David, I have to say, as, as I point out in several places in the book. I'm so honored to have, uh, have helped well, you. Well, you're, you're, a, you're a deep thinking person and you're you're well worth paying attention oh, to listening carefully thank you I, I, at least i'm obsessed with these same things like it cannot be an accident that we find flowers beautiful or that we call these sounds of birds songs you know this is part of we're connected to this whole this whole rush of life we're part of it and you know we need to take it more seriously and uh, i think it's great that you've written so many books that push people in that direction I guess the final thing I'd like to hear you say a little bit about is, is uh, you know, it's hard enough to be a writer to produce such incredible texts on these issues that are, that are readable, understandable, and moving to people. But you've not only done that, you've created a whole institute that uh, kind of connects people and culture and conservation, I think, in a very unique ways that uh, probably people don't really understand because it's so, so rich and complex an organization. How did this organization evolve? Originally, it was focused on oceans, perhaps, and then moved on to something wider. It was originally focused on ocean conservation. It's a small not-for-profit group. It was, as I say, originally focused on ocean conservation. But people kept, kept using the word inspiring to refer to some work I had done or words of mine or something I had written. And I, I capitulated. I said, well, if... If they find it inspiring, I might as well focus on trying to inspire people. That's a, that's a very high ambition. And I should try to find other people who I find inspiring and bring them in so that we can be in league with each other a little bit. And I, I think that the main theme is people who are really interested in, in the, the, the factual aspects of the natural world around us, especially the living world around us. They, they do want to know about it. They want to be good naturalists and good interpreters, but their products make an emotional connection with people. So it's not just doing a science paper or just writing a report or something that is practical like that, but it's also something that moves people. Words or images or film or sound or, or paintings that have not only accuracy, but great beauty to them. And, and even a beauty in their precision sometimes. So that's what the group is about, which is called the Safina Center. It's at safinacenter.org. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to tell people about the extraordinary miracle of the living world that we are in and part of and unfortunately harming and make an emotional connection about it and about the need to keep life alive in this world and keep keep the process ongoing for not only ourselves but for everything that is alive everything that will be alive and all of the humans that will come later and maybe would like to see and experience a lot of this beauty and, and a lot of these living animals the work of the safina center is so important and i think unique among environmental organ organizations because it's emphasizing culture and beauty 
art and music and engagement in, in a really rare and special way. And uh, I've I'm been honored to be part of this work. And it's great that you you develop this aspect of of uh, getting your ideas out into the world because it's it's hard enough to work on these books. I can just see how much effort it takes to take these complex stories and put them in in forms that that people can make sense of. And you know, most writers doing this kind of work shy away from anything involving organizing or groups or um, institutes or bringing others together. So I think it's great that you've been able to make that part of your work as well. Well, as you know, you've written a few good books yourself, and as you know, it, it does take a lot of time and concentration. It's best done with no interruptions, um, alone in a nice, comfortable room, maybe with some great music on sometimes. But um, I, I am also averse to organizing and doing all <laughs> the things that it takes to do a little of what I've done, which is, which is why I've, I'm trying to maintain this balance of doing some of it because I think it's really good and important and and little enough of it that I can continue to sit in my room working on putting these words together because that doesn't happen by accident and it doesn't happen in your spare time it requires a lot of effort and concentration and there's only there's only so many hours in a year you know you in a way, it's kind of like I, I could do one or the other. I'm trying to do both, but I'm, I'm trying to do a, a bit of each anyway. So. Of course, Carl, you're doing more than a bit of each. With the Safina Center, you're doing tremendous advocacy for the natural world, from the oceans to the forests, to art, to science. And in your many books, you're reaching a wide readership, making people pay closer attention to the beautiful world around us. Carl's latest book is Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty and achieve peace. Thanks, Carl, for joining us here and Soundwalker. And thanks to John Wizorek for doing some drumming in the middle there. And thanks to the Department of American Culture at Hasetepe University in Turkey for giving us a little fragment of Sam Shepard's play, Tooth of Prime. See you again. This is your host, David Rothenberg.